Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things they do. I'm Annie. And I'm Farley. Today's episode is set on a cold winter's night, when the ground freezes under your feet and the roads become covered in snow. And I've never actually looked somewhere where it snows, so you're going to have to tell me all about this. All right, well, I'm from Chicago, and it's a place where it snows quite a bit. Um, and like most places where it snows a lot, it's amazing for the first couple days. And then around day two and three, it becomes absolutely dreadful because the white snow you saw in the beginning turns gray because cars drive all over it and it becomes slushy. And then there's ice. And ice is terrible when you're walking around because you have things like black ice where you end up sliding off a place or tripping on things. And then on the roads, it's awful because instead of natural techniques, they salt everything. So so what's the idea with road salt? What's So it's to create a grit for cars to grip onto or... No, it literally melts the ice. So the idea, oh, you literally okay. toss it on and the ice just disappears. So you can do it. You, like I had someone when I was growing up, I would just toss on your, you were, if you were lazy and didn't feel like shoveling, you could just take a bag of salt and sprinkle it over the snow and the snow just dissolves. So is that what people do? You just take out a bag of salt? Pretty much, yeah. So the roads are pretty terrible. You have, you actually, the worst thing is when you're driving and you get a salt truck in front of you and the salt truck, it just has these little, little spinning things that just launch salt everywhere. So you're following along and literally just hear your car being bashed and banged with the salt that's going around. And then it leaves this really fine mist or fine powder over everything. So your shoes, your car, everything is coated in this fine powder, salt powder. Um, and actually ruins cars. So a lot of the wheel wells, especially in Chicago, will be actually rusted over from years and years and years of salt. And your shoes and stuff too, if you're wearing suede or leather, it's good luck. It's just, yeah, pretty terrible. And I'm guessing the salt doesn't stay on the roads, right? Like eventually it's going to get washed into the soil and into ponds and things like that. Well, I mean, if you can imagine the trucks are going by, I don't think it's barely on the road to begin with. It's just <laughs> launching off. They're going 40, 40 miles an hour, like 25 Ks, just this thing is squirting off the back. So it's going everywhere. So yeah, it's probably, I mean, it's probably in every single creek, every single drain. So everywhere it possibly can go, it's going to go. And anywhere water goes and it's melting, it's going anyway. So that is the topic of our episode today. So we're going to be talking about how these freshwater environments end up with so much more salt than they would naturally and how that can create problems for the animals that live there. To learn more about this, we caught up with a researcher who has studied how road salts affect amphibians. I'm Dr. Gareth Hopkins. I'm a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Since recording this episode, Gareth has actually moved to Western Oregon University, where he's now an assistant professor. All right. Well, uh, I always enjoyed uh, working with animals and being outside. I guess it, the first person that really um, prompted me to, to sort of to get involved in science would be my uh grade eight teacher, uh, my great science teacher, and we had to do science fair uh, research. And he said, choose any topic you want. And so I did what I always did when I was a kid is go outside and catch tadpoles and frogs in the ditch. And I started to look at also how we impact our ecosystem. So I was, uh, I built my own waders by duct taping rain pants to gumboots. <laughs> they leaked a little bit. <laughs> 
but uh, they did the trick and I collected frogs and looked at how much garbage there was and did, you know, little pH kits and everything. And, and that began uh, sort of my research career, I guess, in, in grade eight. I did uh, it as a science fair project and had this sort of moment uh, when I was competing at the Greater Vancouver Regional Science Fair where I won this award and I went, oh, I really liked doing that and other people thought I was good at it. And before then, I never really thought I was good at science or good at math or anything like that. And that was a big moment. You were doing analysis of garbage and the pH of water in eighth grade? Yeah, I mean, they were pretty simple. That's <laughs> pretty awesome simple though. pH so things. Awesome <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, they were pretty, you know, they're the, the things that you could buy for testing the pH of your swimming, swimming pool or whatever, you know, little strips, you know. And, and by analysis of garbage, it was like, there's a shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> Those live in Ponto. Oh, so. uh, yeah, yeah. The, the natural shopping cart, yeah. So that's an insanely direct path to doing what you're doing now. Yes. Like from eighth grade on. <laughs> and you knew, like, I want to work. Oh, my, so direct. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I recognize it's, it's an unusual path. Well, it's, all, it's amazing, yeah. actually. It's actually really cool. You knew kind of what you're interested in from such a young age and were mm. able to follow through to mm. such an extent that you're a postdoc yeah. at a university in Australia doing something you love. It's very yeah. cool. Not many people can do that. And joining us for this episode, we also have another guest. Hi, I'm Marty Lockett. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne. And you'll hear more about Marty's research in a future episode. But before we go any further, let's talk a little about salt and water. Animals need to maintain a perfect balance of salt and water in their cells. Too much of either can be deadly. For marine mammals who spend most of their lives in salt water, this can be quite challenging. Some animals, like starfish, can't really regulate at all, which means their bodies just have to match the salinity of their environment. Others have found unique ways to maintain an equilibrium. Marine iguanas found on Galapagos sneeze out excess salt from glands in their nostrils. And sea turtles, how do they deal with living a life in salty water? Well, they have themselves a good cry. Seriously, search crying sea turtle. They have salt glands behind their eyes, which means sea turtles literally cry out salt. So for his research, Gareth wanted to know how amphibians cope with salt. So amphibians, including frogs, salamanders and newts, they absorb water through their skin. Their eggs also need to be laid in water, and rather than having a shell, they have a jelly-like coating that's permeable to salts. So this can make them particularly vulnerable to salty environments. There are some amphibians that can tolerate some salt. Gareth and his colleagues actually found that there are dozens of amphibians living in salty environments, more than people realized. But still, most amphibians rely on freshwater habitats. So Gareth set out to find out how one particular species, the rough-skinned newt, copes when exposed to road salts. I took 16 different female newts from a single pond. And I got them to lay eggs in the lab, and then I reared those eggs under different salinities. I was interested in the effect of salinity stress, you know, that you might get from road deicing salts we use in North America, and wanted to know the impacts of the salinity stress on this freshwater organism that's not used to having salinity. And what I found is that, you know, overall, on average, you might get that 50% of all of the eggs that you reared under salt died at this particular salt concentration. But that wasn't actually the most interesting 
thing about that result. What was interesting is if you looked at the individual females within that population, and you saw that, what I saw is that some females, 100% of their eggs would just die in that salt concentration. But then another female in the same population, 100% would survive. Why that's interesting is because it has a potential to lead towards adaptation by natural selection. What was the difference in the females? I mean, yeah, I'm so, really so, curious, why were they so different? That's why were they so different? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, I, uh, I looked at how much, um, how big the eggs were, how much sort of yolk was invested into the eggs. I looked at the, um, the body condition of the females. I couldn't find any significant differences in, in sort of traits of the females or the amount of uh, energy they were investing in that I could measure anyways in, uh, in the eggs. I think basically these are just, they're genetic differences. They're consistent genetic differences between females. The exact mechanism for how that all works, we don't really know. Natural selection needs variation. Some newt eggs were more resilient to salt than others, which might allow them to develop, reproduce, and pass on this trait to the next generation. But if none of the eggs were resilient, then there would be no way for the population to adapt. So studying variation in populations can help scientists understand their capacity to evolve in response to a changing environment. Now, if you think about salinity though, if you think about salt, it's sodium chloride. That's, that's the primary thing we're looking at. And organisms have a really long history of dealing with sodium as an ion and sodium chloride in general. It's, you know, the, one of the most common salts, right? Common naturally occurring salts. You contrast that though with a different type of salt that was used, magnesium chloride, which in most environments, uh, natural environments, there's not a lot, really high concentrations of magnesium chloride, but um, magnesium chloride is now the second most commonly used road de-icing salt in North America. So people are putting it in, in um, huge quantities, city councils, you know, highway departments are putting in huge quantities on the roads. What I found in my research was that uh, larval newts couldn't deal with magnesium chloride as well as they could deal with sodium chloride. And I think that that again is due to a lack of evolutionary history that these animals have in regulating natural um, quantities of these ions. And so here's again a way in which evolutionary thinking can actually impact management decisions where you can, by, by understanding, by looking at the variance within a population, you can understand the potential for that population to adapt. But, but also by looking at the evolutionary history that those organisms have with those stressors. Are these completely novel stressors or do they have some built-in mechanism already to respond? It's also a lesson, isn't it, in um, not making snap judgments based on small amounts of knowledge because, you know, the magnesium chloride was introduced to try and decrease the harm caused by sodium chloride, is that? Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the magnesium chloride... It depends on who you ask, why, why, why councils use magnesium chloride. Um, I think the primary reason is that it's less corrosive than sodium chloride. And so when you're, when you're putting down you know, these millions of tons of salt every year on these roads and you're concerned about bridges and highway infrastructure and vehicles, um, they wanted something that's less corrosive. Magnesium chloride is less corrosive than sodium chloride. However, what actually gets advertised out there is that um, we understand 
we, you know, as the highway department or as a salt company or whatever, understand that sodium chloride can have these negative effects on freshwater organisms, that salt has this negative effect on freshwater organisms. So instead, we're going to put magnesium chloride, which is not salt. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, literally you see these things saying, you know, we do not salt our roads. We only use magnesium chloride, right, as an environmentally friendly alternative. And yet when you actually look at, you know, what the research is on the effects of, say, magnesium chloride versus sodium chloride, no one's basically done any work on it. And so the absence of knowledge is not the same as saying it's safe. Yeah. You know, it is all about how you market it. And I remember talking to some, um, being out in, in, uh, in Oregon where I was doing some of this work and talking to some people that were very environmentally conscious, concerned citizens. And they're saying, oh, you know, tell me about your research. I was telling them, all, and I, they said, oh, well, you don't need to worry about that here. I don't know why you're doing work out here. You know, they don't salt our roads here. And I said, I had this moment as a PhD student going, oh, crap, there's, like, there, goes my, <laughs> there goes my project. <laughs> what am I going to do for this? This was year one as well. <laughs> what am I going to do for the next four years? Um, but then uh, when I went and looked, at it, I found, oh, yeah, you know, oh, they don't use salt. They only use magnesium chloride, which is a salt. <laughs> but it wasn't marketed that, and it becomes so commonly known, I guess. These people were, like, very proud of the fact that they didn't use salt <laughs> when they really did. So let's summarize what we've heard so far. The two most commonly used road salts are sodium chloride, followed by magnesium chloride. Sodium chloride is found naturally in the environment, but extreme levels of sodium chloride caused by road salts can be harmful to wildlife, especially amphibians. Magnesium chloride is sometimes advertised as a more environmentally friendly alternative, but it can actually be just as harmful. It might even be more harmful. It doesn't often occur naturally in the environment, so animals might not have the capacity to adapt to it. For those of you living in far colder places than us here in Australia, our suggestion to you is this. Instead of salting your driveway or pathway with traditional salt, like magnesium or sodium, try a more organic technique. Sand and pebbles provide traction without getting rid of the ice. If you absolutely hate the ice, have a look into de-ices with a lower salt content, such as carbohydrate-based de-ices. Or, if you've got some cash to spare, heated driveways are pretty damn cool. <laughs> and whenever a company says that their product is better for the environment, make sure you take their claim with a grain of salt. <laughs> so good. So you know, we're not going to stop salting our roads, and there's really good reasons for that. And, you know, human safety is a really compelling reason. And so I think we need to then look at how are organisms going to respond to those stressors and what is their capacity for response? And can we make smart decisions about these, but which, which we use in order to maximize the, uh, the chances of a positive response by those organisms? And I think if we ignore the fact that some uh, populations may be able to adapt to some of these stressors, um, maybe to evolve and adapt these stressors, then we're ignoring the possibility that, you know, they might be able to, uh, to survive in those situations. That being said, 
as some of my research has shown, they may not have an equal capacity to adapt to every different type of stressor. One salt they might not be able to adapt as well to as the other one. We asked Gareth if he had any good stories from his fieldwork. When I was studying newts for my PhD, um, we, we were trapping newts in a lake in the mountains in Oregon. And uh, it was, you had to drive down like a long dirt road in order to get to this lake. And we were the only ones camping at the lake and we'd set up the, these minnow traps lake and we'd noticed that there were sort of some sort of you know rowdy rednecks or something you know on the other side of the lake but they they soon left and so it's all right okay we set the traps up and then the next morning uh we go to check to see if we've caught any newts in these traps and all the traps are gone <laughs> and you can just see where someone has like cut cut the string that was, you know, you know, the, the string was attached to, you know, uh, to the trap and then to a tree. And there's just these little pieces of pink string just dangling in the wind. All the traps are gone. And we're like, what, like, what happened? Like, how did this happen? And so we're going, oh, God, we need to go back. We need to drive for like 10 hours today and we need to leave. But like, we need these newts and, you know, that's it, you know, what's going to happen? And then things got worse. <laughs> We thought, anyways, because we see a police car, a police truck, actually, I should say, like a big police truck drive up. And again, we're probably about two hours down a dirt road from the nearest highway. And all of a sudden, this big police truck shows up, and we're the only ones at this lake. And this, this you know, guy comes out, you know, his hand on his holster, right? You know, this officer, and going, So, what are you doing here? I'm like, Well, uh, well, officer, uh, we're uh, <laughs> we're uh, we're collecting uh, we're trying to to collect these newts. And he goes, "Hmm, are you?" And I said, "Yes." Um, and we've got this permit, and uh, here here's the permit. And he's like, "Well, wh where are your newts?" I said, "Well, well, I." And then he goes, and he pulls out these trap our traps from his vehicle, and he goes, "These yours?" <laughs> and I said. Yes, yes, they're mine. We're, th this is why we don't have notes because we, but would I have this permit, see? Would you like this permit? And he did not want the permit. Um, and uh, he goes, yeah, we had some people turn these in. And he said, thought you were poachers. What? And it's like, but, but, but my name is on it. And it says like, Gareth Hopkins, Utah State University, you know, biological research, please do not remove. <laughs> and, and it has my phone number and my email address. Like, it's all labeled. And he's like, yeah, that's what I told them as well. <laughs> he's like, so can't help you with your newts, but here are your traps if you want them. It's like, wow, you drove like two hours down this dirt road just to return these traps to me. So thank you. That was very <laughs> kind of you. Um, and so it turns out these um, these supposed rednecks that we saw the uh, the day before were actually um, a bunch of hippies that wanted to save the newts. Oh my god! And thought that we were being poachers and thought they were being like very environmentally conscious citizens by releasing all of our newts back into the lake. Of course, if so. they really wanted to stop newt poaching, they could have just let you eat them. <laughs> yeah, that's true, because newts are poisonous. <laughs> <clears throat>
so anyways, that's, it wasn't exactly a mistake necessarily on our part, but it, was, it makes a good story anyways. And as my PhD advisor said to me when I told him this, he said, you know, life is just a collection of good stories. You've just added another one to your collection. <laughs> this also explains why we had to put the words not a moth poacher on our traps <laughs> when collecting invertebrates, yeah. So thanks so much for listening and thanks to Gareth and Marty for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, you can find more about Animalia on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Animalia Podcast, as well as our website at animaliamedia.com. And we'll be launching a Patreon page soon, so do that. Donate lots of money. (laughs) Subscribe, review, rate, repeat. Bye. Oh, wait. <laughs> Before you guys go, my favorite fact of the day, our favorite fact I learned for this podcast was in Wisconsin, they use cheese brine <laughs> to de-ice their roads. If you don't know what cheese brine is, it is salty cheese water. And if you don't know what Wisconsin has, they're like the cheese capital of the world. It's amazing. The ultimate cheese heads. All right. Thanks for that folly. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Orsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin Young, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.